2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Lever Time. Today's show is a show about dark money and its terrifying influence on American politics. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the blockbuster story co-published by The Lever and ProPublica this past Monday, detailing the largest political advocacy donation in American history. $1.6 billion. That's billion with a B and how that money found its way into the hands of Leonard Leo, the man responsible for packing the Supreme Court with right-wing extremists. It's a huge story, and we're going to break it all down. Then we'll be sharing my interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker. We discuss the history of how Republicans became the party of climate denial and obstruction, and how that was a change from a Republican Party that once, at least part of the Republican Party— took climate change somewhat seriously. This week also, our paid subscribers will get a bonus segment, the best moments from this week's Lever Live with special guest Adam McKay, the Academy Award-winning director of, most recently, the movie I worked with him on, Don't Look Up. Adam and I talked about what it feels like to be living through an era of American politics, which feels like we're all inside of that movie. Uh, if you want access to Lever Time Premium, you can head over to LeverNews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. As always, I'm joined by producer Frank. What's up, Frank?
3: Not much, David. Very glad to have you back yes. with us
2: in the studio. I'm sorry I was away for a little bit. Uh, I, I, I I needed a little bit of a break, uh, and I got
3: one. Yeah, and, and look, I, I've just been gunning for your position this whole
2: time so (laughs) i
3: so for me it's it's everything that i've wanted so so i so i appreciate the the test run a
2: little bit of game of thrones while i'm gone Mm -hmm. like like uh palace intrigue and the like yeah
3: it's like oh what if sirota didn't
2: come back like (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah yeah uh that would be fine with me that would be fine you're (laughs) I, i heard you did great uh hosting before uh and you've got a lot of um radio or at least audio experience podcast experience Uh, It looks like a lot of stuff happened while I was gone. I mean, the climate bill happened, uh, our big blockbuster story. I mean, I guess I was back for that, but right when I got back – Uh, which we'll talk about. I mean, it it has been a really, really busy time for the lever right now. Uh, And of course, the climate dystopia has been unfolding in a really kind of terrifyingly crazy way uh, this summer. I mean, it's really scary what's going on out there.
3: And a lot of the news that's breaking is not uh, super hopeful. You know, I mean, we we covered the climate bill extensively. As we said, there's good stuff in there. Also, a lot of bad stuff. So it leaves one. Wanting for more.
2: Let's just say that. Yes, with droughts and wildfires and fire tornadoes and all sorts of iterations of the climate crisis that are absolutely terrifying. I mean, I do think there are reasons to hope. I also think there are reasons to feel uh, uh, somewhat despondent. And that's a good transition into our first story, uh, one of the biggest stories that we've ever broken here at The Lever. And I would genuinely argue, I really mean this. I'm not overstating it. One of the biggest stories in American political history. Now, I know that sounds like an overstatement, but we are really talking about the largest political advocacy donation in American history. About a month ago, the Levers' Andrew Perez uh, got a tip that a reclusive conservative billionaire from Chicago had made a $1.6 billion political donation. That's billion with a B. That makes it, again, the largest single political advocacy donation in the country's history. And not only that, but the money was gifted to a nonprofit organization run by our old friend, Leonard Leo. I'm joking when I say he's our old friend, but the guy that we've focused on a lot. Leonard Leo. Frank's done TikToks on Leonard Leo. We've done a lot of reporting on Leonard Leo. I mean, this guy, producer Frank, I mean, this guy is is like a Bond villain, isn't he?
3: He looks like a Bond villain. He talks like a Bond villain. I never thought I would have to learn about this person. But now
2: that I know about his existence, it, nothing makes me more furious. It, it's, it's pretty bad. And, and by the way, most of the pictures he really does. And I, I want to be clear when I say this. I'm not saying Leonard Leo is a Nazi. But Leonard Leo looks like Tote, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember the guy, like the with the hat and the sort, you know, the who was chasing Marion and uh, like the main Nazi villain.
3: One hundred percent. Yes, we are not saying he is a Nazi. We're saying he looks like the Nazi <laughs> from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just want to make that clear. Yeah,
2: he just fits the caricature of like a cartoon comic book villain. And for those who don't know, he's the co-chair of the Federalist Society, that right-wing judicial focused organization, arguably one of the people most responsible for the Supreme Court's six to three conservative majority and the overturning most recently of Roe v. Wade. He has run the political apparatus uh, that has uh, pushed to install through all sorts of advertising campaigns and the like, pushed to install the right-wing Supreme Court justices that now comprise the majority on the Supreme Court.
3: Yeah. Leo is the most influential person in American politics that you have never heard of. That's right.
2: We can't express how huge this story is that the lever in ProPublica broke the amount of money in the hands of one of the most, most ruthless extremist political operatives will be really will be reverberating through us politics for probably a generation 1.6 billion dollars it is an just there's no way around how big a pile of money that is because if you think about it even that pile of money in the bank just earning interest that pile of money just as an endowment the amount of interest that it would earn to be spent on politics unto itself is enormous so We're talking about a guy who has been unbelievably politically successful already in shaping the American judicial system, now sitting on top of a $1.6 billion pot of money. And this is a story, by the way, not only of Leonard Leo, not only uh, about this reclusive Chicago billionaire who you've never heard of, but also there's a tax angle here, how the tax code itself will now effectively subsidize Leonard Leo's right-wing political machine. To get into more of these details, we're now joined by the levers Andrew Perez, who originally uncovered Leo's uh, giant mountain of cash, as well as ProPublica's Andy Kroll and Justin Elliott, who co-wrote and co-reported the story with Andrew. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? Good. Good to be here. Okay. okay, Before we get into the meat of this story, and it is a very detailed story, I want to start first with Andrew Perez of The Lever, just to tell us as much as you can about how you originally started to uncover the story of this $1.6 billion dark money fund. And what was your initial reaction when you...
1: Learned that it was 1.6 billion with a B billion dollars. Um, well, so we, we had a source come to us with uh, documents sort of detailing the uh, the transaction and the, you know, what, what this organization looked like and a- everything about it was unusual. Um, so. You know, this this nonprofit um, that's being run by Leonard Leo and being funded by um, this Chicago, uh, the secretive Chicago businessman, Barry Side, um, they put um, this money into a trust, um, which was then organized as a 501c4 nonprofit, um, commonly known as a dark money group. Um, and so, you know, everything about it was unusual, including the fact that the way, the way that it was funded was this man um, put his entire business empire into this trust, which then liquidated it, which then sold it to a, uh, to, to, a you know, basically a conglomerate um, for $1.6 billion. And, you know, when I, when I first heard it, I was like, wow, this is easily the biggest story I've ever heard. And I was also, you know, happily corrected my, my impression that we would never, ever know any donors to uh, Leonard Leo's uh, dark money operation, which you know, of course, had successfully recently, uh, you know, flipped the Supreme Court, uh built a conservative supermajority there that overturned Roe v. Wade. You know, I never thought we would know anything about who is funding his operations. And uh yeah, now we know. Right. I mean, this is one of
2: the great mysteries. This has been one of the great mysteries in American politics for quite a while for those who have followed money in politics. Right. I mean, who is funding Leonard Leo is like the question that nobody has really gotten a clear answer on.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was no answer to that question. Um, you know, they, they've been operating since 2005. The numbers grew a lot bigger in the, you know, maybe late 2000s, early, early 2010s. Um, and then in in 2016 is when they really started uh, raising a lot of money. Um And it was to uh, basically prevent Democrats from filling the Supreme Court seat with Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia. Um, That's when their money really started coming in, when they started getting, you know, donations of like $30 million anonymously. Um, And that was something, you know, we'd never really seen before. And it was something that we, we didn't have a good answer for who did this.
2: Okay, so let's let's rewind here for a second. And I want to go to Justin. We'll start with Justin from the ProPublica team. For those folks who don't know who Leonard Leo is, I just I think it's important to rehash who this person is, why he has been called uh, the most powerful person you've never heard of in American politics. Why don't you just give us the summary of who Leonard Leo is, and then and then we will get to the big donor behind him. Actually,
4: can I can I defer to Andy on that one? I'm I'm uh... oh, sure.
0: Andy, go ahead. Leonard Leo is one of these Washington. Types who isn't particularly well known to the public, isn't uh, someone you read about in the front page of the newspaper or see on cable television every day. But he is hugely influential, if not, you know, one of, if not the most influential political activists of the last 30 or 40 years. He came up through conservative Legal circles. Really, we went to Cornell Law. Clerked with a conservative uh, justice, a uh, conservative appeals court judge here in Washington. It was there he befriended another appeals court, court clerk uh, by the name of Clarence Thomas, striking up a lifelong relationship between Leo and Thomas. But instead of going this route. To the inside, becoming a judge, becoming uh, an elected official, becoming a Capitol Hill staffer, Leonard Leo decides that his mission is going to be building a conservative legal movement from the outside, not on the inside, but by marshaling the money, training the lawyers, training the judges, training the clerks, a- and building this really this kind of groundswell um, to support. Conservative legal principles like originalism, like, you know, a very uh, pared back anti-government, free market, uh, religious freedom centric policy from the outside. And so he goes to work at this group called the Federalist Society, builds this pipeline at the Federalist Society to train, mentor, uh, identify and then raise up into the courts a whole generation or two really of conservative lawyers, clerks, judges, and eventually Supreme Court justices, you can find Leo's fingerprints on five out of the six conservative justices on the Supreme Court right now. We can get into, obviously, the mechanics of that, and that also kind of gets to what he's going to do with this huge donation. But it's really hard to understate this guy's influence, Leonard Leo's influence, and yet he has gone Largely unnoticed for decades. So Leonard Leo, kind of this almost
2: movie character, cartoonish character of the, the guy behind the guy of this larger movement to take over the Supreme Court. He's had enormous success. We will get into that a little bit later. but. After his enormous success in shaping uh, the Supreme Court and also uh, other levels of the federal judiciary, in 2020, a transaction happens where a donor, a huge donor, political donor, uh, largely, also largely unknown uh, to the public, not like the Kochs, not famous like that, uh, makes this transaction. So, Justin, I'll turn to you and ask you for the profile of the donor. Who is this donor? And a little bit more detail of how this specific transaction worked. Sure. Yeah. And just to connect it to Leo briefly, I mean, as Andy was
4: saying, obviously, the, the Federalist Society and the sort of conservative legal movement that Leo's part of a major part of, I mean, it's an ideological project. But, uh, you know, as we all know, sort of ideas are not enough. Um, you need, if you, if, if you want to take power, and, and uh, you need money.
2: Well, not according to Leonard Leo, by the way, because at the bottom <laughs> of the story, there was that <laughs> unbelievable quote where, right, Le- Leonard Leo is now in control of $1.6 billion, uh, and he says, quote, I don't waste my time on stories that involve money in politics, because what I care about is ideas. So, I mean, Leonard Leo is, you know, pretending like he has nothing to do with money. Sorry to interrupt, sure, but, I, but sure, it's kind of yeah, hilarious. And
4: yeah, and it's like, I, I'm sure he does care about ideas. Of course he does, but he, he's not known as a kind of ideologist or philosopher of this movement, what he's known for is being really, really good. And as we now know, even better than we thought at just raising huge amounts of money. Um, And that money goes to kind of feed the pipeline of conservative judges that Andy described. It goes to these big Multimedia campaigns to promote uh, Supreme Court justice nominations, or in the case of the Merrick Garland seat, uh, to to try to stop a seat from being filled. So, so this is a guy that's raised a lot of money over the years, a hundred
2: before even what we're talking about, hundreds of millions of dollars, largely anonymous, right? I mean, almost all anonymous money.
4: Yeah, almost almost all anonymous, and uh, there, we still don't know where he raised a, a lot of that money, except for the the new one point six billion. Right, um, and so. Our story really starts, or the sort of important events of our story start in early 2020 um, with this other guy named Barry Side. It's spelled strange, strangely, it's B-A-R-R-E. Um, and he, he's a guy who uh, in 2020 is already in his late 80s, um, qu- quite elderly, um, and quite rich, but but not well-known. Um, part of the reason he's not well-known is... He made his money from this company called Triplight, um, which no one's ever really heard of. Uh, you know, This is a company that's existed for about 100 years, they actually got their start in making a- automobile parts. Like I believe there was some in- innovation of, in automobile headlights. Um, but Side has been involved in this company since I believe the 50s and he's owned it for now for decades. Um, and the company got into uh, manufacturing electronics for computers, um, sort of at the dawn of the computer age. Um, and it just became explosively successful. So they make surge protectors. Like if you look under your desk, uh, you might, you may well have a trip light surge protector. Um, they also make the kind of Incredibly boring seeming equipment that is used in data centers, like not the actual servers and computers, but like literally like the racks that the servers sit on. Um, as we were researching this, I kept thinking about that show Deadwood uh, about the gold rush in South Dakota. And there's like, there's like the guy that is not digging for gold, but he's like selling shovels and picks and shovels. And, and this is kind of like selling picks and shovels, but for like the computer age gold rush. Um, so this company, which is hundred percent owned by Barry side becomes just in, incredibly successful, but it, it's largely unknown because it, it's privately held. You can't buy a share of it. Um, we were able to establish through other reporting that, uh, you know, in recent years, Barry side was, was personally pulling down like 150, $160 million a year of income from this company. So he, he has a lot of money. Um, so, you know, bringing it back to early 2020, um w- what happens is uh this new organization that Andrew described is created it's called the Marble Freedom Trust um and instead of the kind of normal political donation which is just writing a check Barryside does something quite unusual which is he just transfers his entire ownership stake in this electronics firm Triplight to this new Leonard Leo group the Marble Freedom Trust so that's kind of the first step.
2: Uh, I can keep going, around. yeah, absolutely. Because because I think I, I and I want you people to understand what a trust is, like how a trust actually works. So if you can explain that and why that's so important here, yeah, it's interesting and it's un, you know it's unusual to
4: see one of these dark money groups that is organized as a trust. Uh, people don't normally think of nonprofit organizations, which dark money groups are a form of. Uh, they don't think of them as corporations, but in fact, for legal purposes, normally nonprofit groups, including like ProPublica, uh, are technically formed as corporations. What is different here is that instead of forming this this new dark money group as a corporation, they formed it as a trust. And trust can be used for lots of different purposes. Um in this case, you know, we ran this by a bunch of tax lawyers, and th- the best theories that we heard for why they would have used a trust here is, first of all, there are some anonymity benefits. So, if you're trying to do something in secret, and both Barry Side and Leonard Leo have a long history of being very interested in sort of you know moving in the shadows and not telling the world what they're doing, um, then a trust is useful because. You can create a trust, as I understand it, just by having your lawyer drop some papers that sort of says, I've created
2: a trust. You don't have to tell the government. Okay, so I want to stop you there for a second because this to me is kind of insane, right? Like – 501c3s, 501c4s, corporations, they have to register with the state. There's kind of a public registry. So if you're a journalist, you're a, a just person looking around about what's going on in your state, you can go to these registries, these databases. Am I right in saying that by, that by them using a trust here, there's a situation where there's no actual way to know that it even actually exists if you're a journalist or a member of the public unless you get sort of a kind of a like a, like somebody leaks it to you or there's like a there's like a disclosure but that short of that there would be no way to find out that this thing even existed is that right it's right certainly in the
4: early years of its existence so that's why i mean it's august 2022 this thing was created in april 2020 uh and we're and it's, you know, one of the largest political organizations ever, or, you know, sort of political advocacy organizations ever. Um, and we're, we're only finding out about it more than two years later. That's only possible in part because it's a trust because we, the reporters, uh, couldn't go to like the, you know, the secretary of state website of Utah or wherever, whatever state and, and, and sort of look up the name and the officers because it's a trust they don't have to file that stuff, uh, so that's one advantage.
2: I mean, that like so. It's the so to be clear, it's the darkest of dark money. To do it this way, it seems to me, is like I, mean, I don't know if there's anything darker but also legal in American politics and in American life other than this way. I mean, I've never seen something like this. So to me, I just want to stress for everybody: this is like if you're doing it this way, you're doing it to keep it even darker arguably than a 501c4 traditional dark money group that we would at least know that the group exists. Using the trust gives you another level of like, it's hard to even find out that the group exists. Yep. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And
4: it's it's also quite unusual. I mean, we did a whole analysis of like a large part of the universe of these 501c4 groups. And there's like exceedingly few that are formed as corporations uh, and even fewer of those that are Political uh, groups, um, so th- there's another advantage potentially, which is that, and it sort of gets into the weeds. But uh, you know, when you form a corporation, the the governing document or, or the, the, the governing document of that corporation, they're called bylaws, right? Uh, and usually these things are very boring to read. But you know, they say uh, this is the form it's going to take. This is what it's going to do. This is what the board of directors is going to look like. Um, for a trust, that's called a trust agreement. Um, the sort of the sort of analog of, of of a corporation's bylaws, and it turns out we were told by these tax lawyers that uh, a trust agreement is harder to change than the bylaws of a corporation. So if you're a elderly rich guy who's about to give your fortune to a political operative, and you want to make sure that that money gets spent how you want it to be spent even after you die, there is an argument that can be made that a trust is a better uh, vehicle to do that because one, what's in the trust agreement is very difficult to change. Um, so that's, the other, that's our other theory. To be clear, we still don't actually know for sure why they use this trust form um, because they haven't said but uh, but that's our best guess.
2: Okay, so Barryside, this secretive Chicago billionaire, transfers his business empire, uh, at least the resources of it, into a trust whose whose um, whose trustee is Leonard Leo. So Leonard Leo is now sitting on top of a one point six billion dollar uh, trust. And I want to get into very quickly how this maneuver in doing this, and we'll get into the political implications in a sec, but how this maneuver also potentially saved Barry side up to $400 million in taxes that he might otherwise have had to pay. Who's the best person to take that, that I, question? I, I should probably – I can weigh in on that also briefly. I'll Please. try to do a briefly. The,
4: the key thing, the key way to think about this, I think, or the most important way to think about this is that they have been able to structure this transaction, as far as we know, totally legally, uh, in, a, in a way that, in, a, in effect, provides a huge, huge public subsidy for for this group um, and whatever it's going to do with this money. Um, and the way they did it, just briefly, is the following. So if Barry side had simply held on to his company and sold it for $1.6 billion. Uh, He would owe taxes on that, on that $1.6 billion. Exactly how much he would have owed is not clear, but it probably would have been in the hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, as much as $400 million in state and federal taxes. The same way that if you buy a share of stock, that it goes up in value and you sell it, you owe taxes on how much money you made. It's the exact same concept. Um, what happened here is Barryside didn't sell the company himself. He, he tr- simply transferred the company to this dark money group. Then several months later, the dark money group sold the company for the $1.6 billion. One of the things about these dark money groups who I don't usually think about in these terms is that they are tax exempt nonprofits. So they generally do not pay income taxes. So when the Marvel Freedom Trust sells this electronics firm for $1.6 billion, they now have the $1.6 billion free and clear of taxes. Um, and so, you know, this is something that some tax lawyers, and if you want, we could get into the whole sort of twi- uh, twisting and turning regulatory history here. But starting at least 20 years ago, some tax academics said, look, there's a there, there's a loophole here, if you want to call it that, that that's going to allow these 501c4 groups to, uh to, to get this massive tax break, um, and and this
2: this is by far the biz- biggest example of, of this that has ever become public. So, if you transfer the company into the tax exempt trust, and then the trust sells the company, the trust, because it's tax exempt, doesn't have to pay the taxes. Therefore, an additional four uh, up to four hundred million dollars, or hundreds of millions of dollars potentially, uh, is essentially, instead of going to uh, the government in regular taxes, it essentially goes into the trust, a.k.a. now Leonard Leo's giant mountain of cash. So in effect, it is a tax subsidy. One way to look at it is a tax subsidy for this already giant mountain of cash that the conservatives uh, legal mastermind about uh, running a campaign to to shape the federal judiciary is now sitting on top of i mean that's what this is really uh, about and i think then the question is what can leonard leo do with this money andrew i'll turn to you and ask you that question what kind of restrictions if any are on this money what can he do with this money like give us the kind of I don't know, the the, the sort of uh,
1: Bond villain scenario. What can he do? What is he not allowed to do? As a 501c4 group, um, you know, their primary purpose cannot be on politics. However, they can spend money on politics up, up to that line, like up to 49% of their money they, they can put into politics. And the definition of politics is pretty fungible, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So like that's like on campaigns, like if they wanted to donate to You know, he's a long term financier of the Republican Attorneys General Association. You know, putting money into that is is, into a 527 committee is considered um, political political activity. You know, but however, like, you know, the judicial campaigns that that he's been leading, the judicial confirmation campaigns are not political. Those are issue advocacy. So, you know, they could do 100 percent of their money on that if they wanted, though. Clearly, there's no real need for that at the moment. Um, so, yeah, they can put this money into politics, into judicial advocacy. Um, you know, they can we, we know who they funded in the past. We know that they've been funding uh you know the senate republicans uh, dark money arm which is called one nation they they donated nine million dollars to them his network um in 2020 and 2021 um you know they can donate to the republican governors association uh republican state leadership committee which helps elect uh legislators around the country and and you know they can also then pour it into uh sort of like more conservative movement stuff. Like, you know, they've been funding groups that uh, oppose uh, critical race, teaching critical race theory in schools um, and they can, you know, so that that's a more kind of conservative ideological project. They can fund think tanks, universities, which we've seen that they're definitely invested in funding universities before this world. Um, you know, he, Leo was supposedly behind or was believed to be uh, the, the guy who organized the renaming of the George uh, Mason University Law School after uh, the, the late Justice Antonin Scalia. So, you know, there's there's not a lot of limit on what they can do th- with this money. Um, you know, I, I assume like they're not going to just pay themselves giant mountains of cash, but they, they probably have some latitude to do that. Um, there, there is kind of an enforcement structure around it probably to keep that from happening. Um, though, you know, they don't need the money at this point either. Like they, we, we've, we've done a little dive into them. They all bought their vacation homes already. Like maybe, maybe they could use a second, but, but like they're already like, they're already rich. Right. So like r- right now it really is about preserving, you know, the gains they've made, um, preserving the Supreme court as it is. Um, and, and, and expanding, you know, their, their ambitions beyond that. So
2: a guy who's already been unbelievably successful in shaping the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary now is on top of a l- largely unregulated $1.6 billion dollar mountain of cash. There's very little restrictions on on what he can do with it. So I guess my question, um, and I'll turn to Andy. My question then becomes, how common is what you've reported? Do we have any idea of how often this, this kind of tactic is being used? Are we to presume that this is happening all the time? Are we to presume that this is unusual? And then, and then if, if you or anybody else wants to weigh in on this, what, if anything, can, for instance, Congress do about this um, to 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 try to
0: bring it out into the open? So on the first point, I think the size of this donation from Barry side to Leonard Leo, it, just the sheer magnitude of it obviously limits the universe of people to an extremely small, but not that small, given income inequality and the tax code and everything, universe of folks who could make these kinds of basically movement building donations. I mean, that's what Barry side is, is doing here. He is giving this massive fortune, his legacy really, to Leonard Leo to fund 20 years of conservative and libertarian politics, judicial nominations, state level activism, local activism, election work across the board, you name it, academics, et cetera. I and mean, that's what this really is. That's how you have to think about it. You know, as as one of our competitors noted, you know the the group is called Marble Freedom Trusts, you know, because there's some sort of reference to the metamorphic process that creates marble, that only takes place over some long dra- dramatic you know period of time, which one you know major eye roll at that, but two there is a kernel of 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 truth there that we would you know be wise to to heed, which is that's how they're thinking about. This kind of money and this kind of activism right, in those right. long,
2: really, really long term. So, yeah, so, really, and, really and, long I, term. I, and I should have, I should have asked this before. But, 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 can you just summarize what we know about what Barryside really wants? I mean, he's such a mysterious figure. Just tell us a little bit about how. How little we kind of know about him, I mean he hasn't been even photographed all that often yet he's a he's a, a you know worth a, at least one point he was worth one point six billion dollars like what do we know about his motivations?
0: Yeah, I can dig into that one a little bit and Justin Andrew jump in too um i mean it's really clear that he is a highly conservative and libertarian leading ideologue he he this comes through both through in his relationship with Leonard Leo, which we've established goes back, you know, possibly as much as a decade that they have been, you know, interacting. Leo was on the board of a previous Barryside outfit, kind of looks like a predecessor to this Marble Freedom Trust. He's a big donor to groups like the Heartland Institute, which we know is a hardcore climate skepticism, you know, think tank, Pushing fossil fuels, attacking climate scientists, at one point comparing climate science to Ted Kaczynski the Unabomber, perhaps the most infamous episode in Heartland's history. They've got well over six figures in donations from Barry's side. He is believed to be the donor of a really virulently anti-Islam documentary that was circulated in 2008 during the campaign season. So we have these little brief glimpses and, and snippets and what really comes through is someone who, yeah, is a pretty devoted conservative slash libertarian ideologue on economics, on the law, on education, on politics, you know, demographics, you name it, international policy. And that completely then aligns with what Leonard Leo is aiming to do, certainly on the domestic front. Right. So not a, not a casual
2: uh, political actor here, somebody who is high, highly ideological. Highly motivated. Okay, so now I want to pivot to because I'm sure people who are listening to this are thinking, okay, there's a nightmare scenario here of a mountain of dark money uh, that will dominate American politics for the next generation. Andrew or Justin, what, if anything, can Congress do about, if not this specific mountain of cash, then all of this cash uh, that is uh, dark? Uh, anonymous, that's flooding into American politics, influencing uh, judicial nominations, public policy in general. Is there anything that can be done knowing that the Supreme Court, the Leo-created Supreme Court majority, has done a, uh, a lot of work to legalize this kind of what I would call corruption and influence? What can be done right now about this?
4: Yeah, let, let me let, let me address the the tax aspect, yes, uh, which is a, which is a small part of it, but you know something we we probably don't talk about enough, uh, just because it gets so boring so quickly. Um, but you know, I I did hear from some from some tax lawyers after we published the story, p- pointing out that th- this whole practice of of the law allowing allowing somebody to give. Uh, what 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 they would call in the in the t- tax legal world like appreciated property property that had that had risen in value to a dark money group that then sells that property tax free that's where again the, the sort of public subsidy of this comes in mm-hmm. um, Congress could change that tomorrow uh, and in fact um, you know if, if there was political will uh, it, in fact it turns out if if you tried the same maneuver with a different type of nonprofit. What, uh, like a political campaign or a super PAC, um, it's actually it actually already uh, is banned in that context. Like if you tried to do this with a super PAC, you would owe the multi-hundred million dollar tax bill. Um, so that that could easily be fixed if Congress, uh, you know, wanted to fix it. I haven't heard of any constitutional issues related to that. Um, so you know. That's something that we have heard some interest in, in the last couple of days.
2: That's that's fascinating. Andrew, what about things like disclosure? Uh, what can be done there? What I, I know that there are some lawmakers that have been long pushing for uh, a piece of legislation that's been sitting in Congress really for years on just the, the basic disclosure. What's that about?
1: Well, so Democrats have talked about um, both kind of compelling uh, disclosure of dark money donors to political groups, um, to, or to politically active nonprofits. Um, you know, like the group I had mentioned, one nation would be an example of that. You know, they, they've also then talked about, um, requiring disclosure of donors to these groups, trying to influence, uh, judicial confirmation campaigns. That's something they've talked about. It was something that was going to be included in the, uh, you know, for the people act, that Democrats um, tried to pass their kind of most sweeping um, voting rights and democracy reform legislation. Um, So, you know, those are things they could come back to. This would probably give them some case to do it, though. This is actually one of the rare instances in which we know who funded who funded this outfit. You know, it's one of the rare occasions we've seen that at all. Um, And it's also such a ridiculous pile of money that that it can exist kind of as like a self-perpetuating Uh, machine like it, you know, if, if, if the market goes right, this, if it's, you know, no longer in the tank, like they could just be building and building and building this pile of money from what's already there. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, that's the endowment. That's why I say like, this really
2: could dominate American politics for a generation because if, if in the endowment model, it sits there and they just spend the interest and mm-hmm. the interest off of 1.6 billion dollars without even touching the principal is can be just unbelievably uh, enormous. I mean this this reporting is just it's like a glimpse of a world we never get to see. So I want to finish up this conversation just to give folks a sense of what it's like to report a story like this. I know your team Uh, has been working on this uh, really for almost uh, two months, I think. Uh, And I guess when this story came out, there was – it was uh, kind of a shock. give people a little bit of a a glimpse into our our newsroom, is that um, the story was all teed up. It was uh, being fact-checked. It was being triple-checked by lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, and boom – out came on Monday, Monday morning, uh, a New York Times story with the nugget of the story. It wasn't as um, expansive uh, and and deep uh, as the ProPublica lever story. I'm not scoffing at it. It had the nugget of the $1.6 billion transaction. I'm just curious, like – what was that like for you? I know what it was like for me when I, to wake up Monday morning because we'd been working on this story. What was that like for you to see it there? Uh, what do you make of that I'm just 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 so folks who don't who are not involved in the reporting process tell them what that that was like any of you
0: well if i if I had my cell phone here, I could show you the uh shattered screen that was the result of of uh that morning's uh, outburst from me, which, I mean, it's, you know, in some ways it's the worst feeling in the world. You work so hard on a story and then you see a version of it come out and you wonder how did that come to be? But I mean, I will say a a total credit to everyone here that, you know, we really worked hard all day to to put all those finishing touches on the story and, and get a really good story out there that I think covers all of these different angles that we talked about because this is such a monumental chunk of money and it has the potential, the potential to change our politics, our, you know, American life for, for quite
2: a while here. I mean, to me, waking up in the morning and seeing that story, it was like a kick in the gut because I, because I've seen you guys working, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, Justin or Andrew, what was it like for you guys?
1: Yeah. It was horrible. It was, you know, it's funny. It's like, I woke up a, f- a little bit later than everyone else. So like I woke up to like a million texts being like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, man. And I was just like, Oh no. Like what happened? What happened? And I'm reading the story and I'm just like, wow, I hope at least they left out the donor. Oh no, no, he's in there. They they included the donor. Yeah. It was just brutal. Yeah. I, I would just throw in
4: there that, um, you know, thinking Thinking back over the years, I, f- I feel like I've written stories about like a hundred thousand dollars worth of money, and this is one point six billion, which yeah. as you were saying, David, it's like just getting around get, getting your head around the amount of money. I just think that it it merits uh, and it, it's hard the way the news cycle works uh, it It merits sustained attention just because of the the sort of mind boggling scale of this. like you said, I was thinking earlier, like if you just put this money in a savings account. Right. Uh, not even anything fancy that was getting two percent a year, like that's that's throwing off thirty plus million of interest, and you're not even touching the principal. So, anyways, the but that's just to say that we remain very interested in both Barryside and Leonard Leo and what's happening with this sort of giant pile of money and that. Uh, you know, people, if if you have ideas or know anything that we should know, please reach out to one of us. Our contact infos. Somewhere on the story, I think, um, and yeah, we hope to we hope to uh, we hope to stay on this without revealing too much about our plans.
2: Well, you should know that um, Ken Vogel, uh, who I actually like, uh, but Ken Vogel is sort of in my own little life here. Is sort of like my Newman to my Seinfeld, like Newman, right? Like <laughs> Ken Vogel. Uh, again, I like Ken Vogel. Ken Vogel and I played in the same Jewish basketball league, uh, growing up together, and I'm. I'm not sure, but I, I, I think he was on the opposing team that tackled me and broke my elbow. Uh, in a game. I was the best player on my crappy team, uh, and they got mad at me, and it was the era in Philadelphia of the bounty hunter uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles and the flagrant fouls and the Sixers team that was like the bruiser team, <laughs> and I got tackled, broke my elbow, and I'm, I am I think, I know Ken was in the league. I think he might have been on the opposing team, so this is the second flagrant foul uh, that he has been at least linked to, uh, him <laughs> scooping us, but I, as I say, I like him, and to his credit, he tweeted out our story. He promoted our story. He's Ken Vogel of the New York Times. Uh, he is a uh, He's a great reporter. Uh, and I agree with you. Uh, it's great that this story, uh, pieces of the story were in the New York Times. It's great that our story came out. It's great to give this as much maximum attention as possible. And I want to thank each of you for your extremely hard work in reporting out this story. As I said at the top of this, finding out the money behind Leonard Leo—it cannot be overstated—has truly been one of the big political mysteries of this era. And obviously, we don't know all the money, but we now have a snapshot, a glimpse of a giant mountain of money that we never would have known was there, but for this reporting. Thanks to all of you. Thanks, Thanks for David. Me. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with the New Yorker's Elizabeth Colbert. If you're listening to Lever Time, you know soft when you see it. Soft is a Democratic House member pledging to be for a $15 minimum wage and then immediately backing down. Soft is a Democratic senator pledging to tax billionaires and then betraying that promise. Soft is Joe Biden insisting that he supports unions and then backing down to corporate lobbyists. But even the Democrats in Washington aren't as soft as sheets and giggles, eucalyptus sheets. Sheets and giggles should be the place you get your sheets because they're awesome. They're unlike anything you've ever tried. They're naturally softer than even the best cotton and they are temperature regulating. They keep hot sleepers cool. They keep cold sleepers warm. Even in the same bed, this is particularly important in places like Colorado where I live and where the temperature fluctuates all over the place. The cool thing is that Colin, the founder of Sheets and Giggles, he's mission driven. He's a guy right here in my hometown of Denver who's been a longtime reader of the Levers journalism. He's been pushing Colorado to enact a public health insurance option. And he's making sure that Sheets and Giggles' products are made sustainably and ship in zero plastic packaging. Their sheets use 96% less water than cotton and 30% less energy than cotton. For comparison, a single set of polyester sheets can leach 10 million microplastic fibers into our waterways every single year just through the laundry. So look, if you want to support a business that supports our journalism and a business that is values-driven, Sheets and Giggles is for you. Go to sheetsgiggles.com slash lever for a 15% discount and get yourself set up today. That's sheetsgiggles.com slash lever. Their sheets are softer than the Biden administration, and you're helping support a great company that's making our journalism possible. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our final segment today, I'll be sharing my interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Elizabeth Colbert. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker and has been writing about the ecological impact of climate change longer than almost anyone. I spoke with Elizabeth about the state of the climate movement, as well as about how the Republicans became the party of denialism and obstruction. They became that... After being a party that at least had some lawmakers uh, that took climate change seriously, we discuss the evolution of the Republican Party and what it means in the era of climate apocalypse. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks for joining us.
5: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Okay, so your story about climate change and the now partisan nature of climate politics, it caught my eye because. It's something that um, in my old age, uh, I still have a vague memory of, a vague memory of Republicans not being, or or at least not all Republicans being total climate denialists. And I think how that party changed into a party of climate denialists is really important. It, It really may surprise some of our listeners that 20 years ago, some Republicans supported even spearheaded legislation to to deal with climate change. Just very briefly, can you give folks just a, a summary of that history over the last 30, 35 years of going back to when the Republicans or there were at least some Republicans who uh, seemed to take the, the crisis seriously?
5: Well, I mean, I think people would say, you know, historically, you could go back even further than 30 years ago. You could go back really 50 years to the great age of environmental legislation in the US in the early 70s under, you know, Richard Nixon, really. Um, And then I guess Gerald Ford, when Nixon resigned, and a bipartisan Congress, when you look at the votes for the Clean Air Act, uh, Endangered Species Act, those were, you know, I don't recall if the votes were unanimous, but they were really bipartisan. And, you know, you could say those were the halcyon days when People, you know, had the parties had people had different views on different issues and they you couldn't depend on them to lockstep vote with their party. Has that? Um, And when climate change sort of emerged as an issue, um, I will say it was it was largely the work to bring it to Capitol Hill of Democratic senators like uh, and representatives um, like Al Gore and Tim Worth who held some of the very first hearings on Capitol Hill. But there is a very interesting story about John McCain, who was sort of dogged around New Hampshire in the year 2000 by a, a, a then kid, uh, now, now adult, um, who called himself Captain Climate. And there were a bunch of young climate activists who confronted all the candidates as they would go into these little, you know, forums in in New Hampshire, which is a great part of the New Hampshire primary, uh, that you can really meet the candidates and harass the candidates. And he t- always told the story that, that the, you know, they would say, what's your plan? What's your plan for dealing with co- climate change? And he... Said that he didn't, he acknowledged he didn't have one. And he went back to Washington and he held a series of hearings that people described as very good hearings, really serious hearings, three hearings. And after those hearings, um, he and Joe Lieberman, uh, you know, reached across the aisle and came up with a bill that now looks like, oh my God, you could never get that bill passed. You could never get a Democrat, you know, to sponsor that bill. It was a cap and trade bill. It was modeled on the amendments to the Clean Air Act in 1990, which had uh, used this cap-and-trade system to cut down very successfully and very cost-effectively on sulfur dioxide, which is the pollutant that causes acid rain. And then, you know, the story, more as we know it, unfolds, you know, John McCain then Sarah Palin as his running mate in 2008, you know, so, so things go south uh, pretty quickly after that. And, you know, people have different theories, but clearly, uh, you know, the idea that one party was sort of, you know, bought by the fossil fuel industry um, and by a lot of dark money, you know, seems seems pretty compelling.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the, 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 the question to follow along the evolution of the Republican Party. Is it your view that it is really an evolution of the party becomes a weapon of the fossil fuel industry and essentially bought by the fossil fuel industry? I mean there used to be – and there are still some. But there used to be what were known as oil patch democrats uh in congress uh, and, and Joe Manchin I think is a is a I mean is a coal patch a coal uh, democrat he's kind of a, a a remnant of that and and they still they still exist certainly but, I, but but when you look at campaign finance filings you see the oil and gas industry really at this point going almost almost blatantly all in for the republicans and i'm not you know Deifying the Democrats. They've got, they've got their issues too. But I guess, I guess my question is, do you think that the evolution of the Republican party was basically just a financial transaction where the fossil fuel industry just bought the party, went all in with the Republican party financially? Or is there ideology behind it? Are there other factors that have, that go into explaining the change of the Republican party on climate change?
5: Well, I think, I think it is probably, you know, a more complicated, um, evolution than simply they bought a party. Although that, you know, you know, first pass, you know, estimate, that's, you know, not bad. Um, and a lot of money, if you look at the public filings, that's inadequate to show, you know, how much Koch brothers money, et cetera, has gone into these, some of these really, you know, creepy campaigns. But, you know, we're looking at, we can't, we now have two parties that don't agree on anything. They don't agree on, you know, COVID, okay? So, you know, y- you could say, well, whatever the Democrats were, uh, y- y- you know, however you want to put it, whatever progressive policies the Democrats were going to push, the Republicans were going to be against them, and climate change um, was part of this uh, mix. And I think if you look geographically, then things do become slightly more interesting, you know, um because for example now, well, North Dakota, which used to have some Democrats, you know, huge oil producer. Now now we don't have any more Democrats. But Colorado, which is, you know, a very purple state, a lot of fracking happening in Colorado. Ditto for Pennsylvania, which we'd kinda would consider even a blue state, a lot of fracking going on in Western Pennsylvania. So the geographical politics are a little bit more complicated. Uh, than the party politics these days, I'd say.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. And uh, I'm here in Colorado right now. It's where I live. And you're right to cite it as, you know, we are now a uh, relatively blue state. And we still have a huge amount uh, of fracking uh, and um, a huge amount of oil and gas development. Absolutely. Um, I think then the question becomes, is there – do you foresee in your reporting or what you see out there in the world – Any chance that the Republican Party is going to become more rational on this issue? I mean, and I want to suggest that, listen, there's ways for the parties to disagree on what to do about climate change. But we, I think, are still in a world where the Republicans aren't really as a party uh, proposing to do much of anything. I mean, they sort of most Republicans will sort of acknowledge that, yeah, the the climate may be changing, but they're not really proposing to do much of anything on it. Is there any hope that 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 the debate, the discourse, the policy conversation between the two parties will at least start revolving around, you know, the Democrats propose this, the Republicans at least propose this? Or do you think they're just so all in on denial that that's that's just not going to happen?
5: Well, I do think that's an you know pretty interesting question going forward, and I think that you know right now, and I guess I should preface this by saying you know what one woman's opinion, one reporter's opinion, you know the Republican Party doesn't really have much to say about anything that isn't you know you stole the twenty twenty election. So we're not talking about a lot of uh, high level thinking going on, in my view, you know. So what happens? you know if um the party wins the house let's say right. in november you know they'll just be the party of obstruction that seems pretty clear we have you know democrat in the uh white house and we'll have you know however the senate goes down probably pretty evenly divided senate so they can just spend their next two years you know Trying to do as many investigations as they can, and you know, make as much trouble as they can, and then you know, the rubber will hit the road, as it were, in twenty twenty two. And you know, I think that, I mean, I have personally I have a very pessimistic view of what the issues in twenty twenty four are. I mean, twenty twenty four are going to be, and they're going to be, you know, did you, you know are Democrats a bunch of lying thieves or are we going to get a bunch of lunatics uh, running our country? And are we heading towards, you know, civil war? So, you know, climate change, unfortunately, is going to be once again, and this is why, you know, the inflation reduction act, whatever you might think of it was so important because people realized you're getting, this is your last chance. It may be your last chance for a decade or who knows, you know? So it's, it's a very scary moment for you know so many reasons and the inability to focus on you know what i believe and i know you believe is you know the crucial issue here you know unfortunately just one of the many scary things going on
2: for sure for sure and and i think that that the argument about the inflation reduction act i've said it before i'll say it again I think as best as I can tell, there's a decent chance that the bill will somewhat reduce emissions. I think the tacking on of fossil fuel expansion to a climate bill was a very bad thing uh, that has happened. I, I'm i concerned that that a, a, a Republican Party not only winning the House but winning Congress and winning the presidency in 2024, I'm certainly concerned that what they will do to that bill is they will end. Or limit the renewable energy investments uh, and and expand the fossil fuel expansion in there. That they will essentially be in a position to take that bill and I- expand the worst parts of it and reduce the best parts of it. Uh, that's what I'm concerned about. But I want to go back to this 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 question about the Republican Party and and how or whether it really uh, acknowledges that climate change is a thing. I mean, the best I can tell is that the republic. You hear a lot of Republicans and rank and file Republicans on social media and the like say, "Look, the climate's been changing uh, for millennia, for you know, millions of years." Uh, the idea of human caused climate change, eh? Uh, we're not really sure it's happening. The, the science is sort of. I mean, they're at least not saying the science. Uh, most of them are not saying the science is complete garbage, but that you know, the idea that humans can can control this is is a lot of nonsense. Uh, to me, I still can't see what a any kind of even Republican-themed climate policy looks like, right? Like a, there are Republican-themed healthcare policies, right? The Republicans want to do, you know, uh, buy insurance across state lines or various tax credits for employers and the like because they the, the Republicans at least acknowledge that the healthcare system is a problem. This, it seems, stands apart. The climate stands apart. That it's a, it's a party that doesn't even pretend to have a policy. I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is, like, Have you seen in the past, right from the McCain era or prior to that, kind of what a Republican themed climate policy might look like a a kind of one that honors, I guess, conservative ideologies or or is that just does that just not exist?
5: Well, I I should say there I was on a a committee um, recently that was, you know, looking on. I think it was called Accelerating Climate Action and there were some young Republicans on it, you know, and I think that, you know, the best that can be hoped is young people, you know, are increasingly concerned and educated about climate change and, you know, that as a new generation takes power, um, you know, in, in the old, um, sort of, you know, theory of scientific revolutions uh, way, you, you know, maybe that a certain, you know, maybe the James Inhoffs of the world have to be, you know, basically underground, um, but a new generation will come into power. And I think, you know, look what a conservative, you know, approach to climate change has always been. You know, mar- market driven. And honestly, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, in a way, that's what, that's what we're doing now. We're just doing it with tax credits. We're not doing what tax says. But, you know, if you were an economist, you'd say, well, taxes are a lot more efficient way to spend your money than tax credits. Um, you know, a cap and trade is, you know, a tax by another name. And that was a Republican at one time considered a Republican, um, proposal, as I say, John McCain, that was a cap and trade. Um, so I think that there are, you know, obvious ways that you could, uh, use market mechanisms that we are going to use market mechanisms to try to drive this process of adopting, you know, cleaner forms of energy. Um, but you're, you know, to your point, how long, and, you know, I think we have to also, there's a complicated dance obviously between, um, the candidates and the voters, right? So if I'm, you know, uh, making a living off of fracking or my neighbors are making a living off of fracking and, you know, you come in and you even, let's say you're, you know, a well-meaning Republican candidate, say, look, you know, we got, we got to shut this stuff down. <laughs> you know, it's not exactly clear to me that you're, you know, going to win office. So we have this, you know, we have these really bad politics. And I think that you know, we also have to acknowledge that under, you know, and I know that you have pointed this out, you know, under under Barack Obama, you know, we became a huge, you know, exporter of fossil fuels again. So, you know, we have a huge economic we we were our, – our, our, the, the vested interest in fossil fuels were sort of on the decline and now we've bumped them up again and now we have this huge industry that wants to export oil, wants to export liquefied natural gas and that's going to be a really hard political force to deal with.
2: I, I completely agree and the thing that kind of blows my mind is to think about the effects of climate change getting worse. You know, uh, uh rivers, uh, uh, watersheds drying up, uh, wildfires and the like. And y- you have one party that that accepts the science rhetorically, uh, one science uh, – uh, one party that wants to at least invest in renewable energy. And I, I look, I, I've got my issues with the Democrats and how they're not taking on the fossil fuel industry in as strong a way as I'd like to see them take on and as, as strong a way as the climate scientists say they need – that the industry needs to be taken on. But you've got another party in the middle of this kind of ecological apocalypse that's really not offering right now, much of anything. And if the situation, if the ecological situation gets worse, it's like how long can can that party go and just pretend nothing is going on? I mean, who are they going to blame wildfires and droughts and and all the the rest of it on? I mean, what's the Republican explanation for, you know, fire
5: tornadoes? What are they going to say? Well, I fear, I, fe- I, I dreadfully fear that we may find out. But I think that your point is you know, incredibly well taken. And we can use the example of, you know, the Colorado River Compact. And, you know, that is a very, you know, couldn't be more topical right now. And, you know, that's a mix of red states and blue states, both overusing the Colorado River. Um, And, you know, they were told to try to, you know, work it out amongst yourselves, you know, get some kind of deal here. They couldn't, Do that because, you know, no one is going to give up anything until their backs are absolutely against the wall. So the federal government has, the Interior Department has had to come in and, you know, tell them what they're going to do. But this, all indications are, you know, that this drought is not going away. Uh, you know, so I think the cuts that they announced are maybe supposed to take us through 2023. But, you know, someone's going to inherit this mess. Um, and if it's, you know, god forbid, <laughs> a republican administration, they're still going to have to make sure that people have water. There's seven states there, you know, they can't go without water. So I don't know what they're going to do. You know, that was a disaster that the Trump administration just barely managed to dock and you know, leave to the uh Biden administration.
2: Right. I mean, if you if you if you haven't proposed an answer to these to, to these big questions, if you're still pretending like it's not really a big deal, then if you are – if your party is in power and you need to have a policy – it's really not clear uh, what what you're going to actually do. I mean, and people are going to get more and more pissed off. Uh, The effects are going to be more and more extreme. I mean, that is, that truly is the dystopia. And I'm sorry to end this conversation on a a low (laughs) note, but I'm not sure where else to go. We're talking about, you know, the Republican Party and climate change. Elizabeth Colbert, thanks so much for taking the time today.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium get to hear our bonus segment. This week, it's the best moments from the most recent Lever Live with Academy Award-winning director Adam McKay.
1: I think we both hoped that that movie would come out and that within a year or a year and a half,
2: there would would be some giant awakening about climate and
0: our uh, culture uh, and the movie would quickly fade away into irrelevance. But um, no, sadly, uh, the denial
2: of reality from our media and our culture about climate continues. And please be sure to like, subscribe and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, Please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.